0: In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allah. Brothers, sisters, in person, online, assalamu alaykum jamee'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to this latest uh, installment. Thank you for joining us in this important topic of the afterlife where we began in the next few times that we met with explaining the importance of the topic. We talked and established the existence and independent existence of the soul. And we said we're going to need this as a principle for all of the subsequent discussions that we will have So we need to establish the existence of the soul and that this is our true identity and that this body is on loan for us. And then we looked at establishing the proofs for the afterlife based on reason. And we said that the main proofs for that are going to be based on divine wisdom and divine justice. And we're not going to go through the full recap of those proofs. And then we turn to the Holy Qur'an to see if it also establishes rational proofs for the necessity of the afterlife. And we saw that the Holy Qur'an starts by explaining to us that once again, the afterlife is not just a mere possibility, but that it is a necessity. And it begins by following a certain logic. First, by establishing that the We are surrounded by phenomena that should remind us of the not only possibility but the actual occurrence of the resurrection and therefore the afterlife all around us all the time. And just looking at the normal cycle of life and death as it happens in nature, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Holy Quran tells us that the reason why He created this world in this specific way is specifically to attract the pull to draw our attention to no, alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullah, to the reality, to the possibility, to the necessity of the afterlife. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not have to create the world in this way. The fact that He made us lose our consciousness and lose our state of, av- of awareness when we go to sleep, the Holy Quran says this is a minor type of resurrection. And in fact, it explains that our souls depart. Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala decides to give us back or not our souls every time we go to sleep. Some souls are retained, and some souls are let back into uh, being. You know, in the living world. And then when we look at the natural world, we see example after example that the Holy Quran gives. What happens to a dead land? Once, once the rain and the water get to it, how it starts to swell and breathe and come back to life. And it fills with life, not only the vegetation, but the animals that come and so on and so forth. And then eventually it dies again. And this is a cycle. And the whole Quran tells us Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically created the world in this way, so that it draws our attention to this reality that it is surrounding us all the time, and that it is not as unlikely as one may think. So this takes out, out of the equation, out of the discussion, whatever claims someone may have that uh, there is no proof or that it is very unlikely that there is no afterlife, that the afterlife is too unlikely to happen. And then the Holy Quran, of course, gives us other stories and phenomena, but we can consider those more miraculous. They break away with the natural order of things. It explains how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed certain prophets to resurrect the dead. We have the story of Bani Israel who were basically asking Prophet Musa to see God and so they end up dying and then being brought back to life. The bird of Prophet Ibrahim, how Prophet Isa raises people back from the dead. Prophet Uzair who was put to death and brought back. All of these are examples to establish and allow people to actually experience this reality of the resurrection. And then, of course, if you believe in these scriptures... As the Muslims do, as the Jews and Christians do, then you have to believe in these, in this reality, in this world, and in the next world. So we covered all of that from the Holy Quran. In addition to which, we added the divine promise, and we saw that the Holy Quran not only says that uh, the afterlife is a divine promise. Therefore, it would be unbecoming of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to make a promise and then break it. But it also adds the same rational proofs, but in a Quranic way, presented by the Holy Quran, those proofs that we establish rationally. So there has to be an afterlife because God is just, and there has to be an afterlife because God is wise. He did not create this world as a plaything. He created not this world as a diversion. He created this world with a purpose. And if there is no life or no afterlife, there is no purpose. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we saw the, the logic that goes in establishing all of this. So this was the rational, these were the rational proofs presented by the Holy Quran. So they're scriptural, they're presented by the Holy Quran, but they are rational proofs. So keeping all of this in mind, we said now we want to look at the type of world that the afterlife is. What is this afterlife and what can we know about it? So once again, we began by looking at the question based on reason, as we have done throughout these series, We began with reason, and so we spoke a little bit about where reason applies and where reason does not apply. And we said that the afterlife can only be known at a very high level when we apply human reason to it. We can know generalities, we can know universal principles about it, but we cannot really get to know its details because it's not a type of reality, it's not a type of world that is accessible to human reason. It's not something that we can experience, or we know anyone who has experienced. they come back and they tell us how it is. We don't know any part of it. And as we shall see, inshallah, in the next weeks, as we discuss this, the Holy Qur'an will make it very clear that the afterlife is an entirely different type of existence than this one. It's not an extension of this world, so that you may think some law or principle that you understand about this world applies to the next one. The whole Quran explains again and again, this world is going to be put to an end and a new world is going to be created. That's the afterlife. And so if that is the case, then how are we to use human reason to discover that? When as we saw, we don't even understand fully the world that in which we live, even in the most basic building blocks that make up this world. Okay? So once all of that was discussed so this is a limitation of human understanding of human reason then we went to the application of that so what can we say about the afterlife based on human reason and we said there are five big things that we can say first we said that the afterlife has to be a type of world that is eternal and everlasting that we can prove and establish based on reason alone secondly it has to be a type of world where the perfections exist in an absolute way. In this world, anything that we may call a reality, whatever it may be, any quality that we have in this world, is not absolute. So if you apply this to any entity that exists, there is nothing that exists in (laughs) in in an absolute pure sense. This exists in the afterlife. The third reality, and of course we're not going to repeat everything we said to establish all of these. The third reality is that Clearly in this world, there are two types of actions. Therefore, we need two types of existence in the afterlife. Okay, so we don't know the details, but we know that there is good and bad in this world. The next world needs to be able to accommodate for those, both of them. The fourth reality is that based on divine justice, we said that this world does not allow for Full fairness, full justice to ever happen in this world because of the nature of this world. You can never repay someone fully and justly depending on the type of good or type of bad that they have done. If it was very good or if it was very bad, it would be outside the nature of this world to allow us to fully repay them, fully punish them or fully reward them. And we give as examples someone who, let's say, sacrifices their life to save a thousand people. Or someone who does the opposite, someone who kills a thousand people. How do you punish someone like that? This world does not allow for this. So if you believe in divine justice, then you have to say there has to be a world in which there is a way to fully punish and fully reward for these types of actions, which is impossible to do in this world. Okay. And then finally, and most importantly, we said the main difference between this world and the next world And for us, for our practical purposes, for the manner in which we live our daily lives, this is where it really, you know, as we say, the rubber hits the road. This is where it makes a real difference in our day-to-day lives. The main difference is that this is a world of action and there is no accountability. And the next world is a world of accountability and no action. There is no justice in this world. No matter how you spin it, you have people who do really well, really good, who sacrifice, who do everything that they're supposed to do, human history does not recognize them, does not reward them, does not uh, you know, make of them heroes or people recognized, and so on and so forth. And you have the opposite. People who do horrible, evil things to all kinds of people. Sometimes this lasts for generations or decades or centuries, the bad that they do. And yet, history recognizes them as heroes and as good people, and this is the type of the world that we have. Okay, so again, we're not going to repeat all the details. This world is not a world created for justice and fairness. This is a world to see how human beings behave if they are given freedom of choice and put in certain cert- situations and circumstances. That's it. And all of the results, all of the outcomes, all the good and bad is, needs to be pushed back, postponed to the afterlife. The rest is part of the test. So if you do good and you receive good in this world, that second good that you got is also part of the test of this world to see what you're going to do with it. Because this is not a world of results. and This is not a world of rewards and punishments. Okay, this is a world of test. So if this is well understood, it means that the next world can only be a world of reward and punishment and can never be a world of action. So any action that you have, any Application of your free will needs to happen in this world and in the next world you reap what you sowed There is nothing else going on in this in the next world except the consequences of what you put in in this world so when you go to the next world if in any shape or form you want to make you add an ability to the human being to exercise a free will to act to be accountable for something in the afterlife, it means you're going to need another afterlife after it in which you're going to have to hold the human being accountable for that. So, And then you have a a logical problem. So in short, we said, this world can only be a world of action and no outcomes, no reward or punishment, and the next world is only a world of reward and punishment and not a world of action. This is what we were able to conclude based on reason. And we said now, knowing this, so this is not nothing, it gives us a solid foundation for understanding the afterlife. Now we want to get into more detail. And we said since human reason stops here, these are the limits of human reason, anything else that anyone wants to say, we said is going to be an excessive reliance on human reason, a mistaken reliance on human reason. So you're going to create your own theories and your own conjecture, But it's not based on any truth. You may or may not be right. And most likely you can't be right because it's not things that you can ever know based on human reason. Therefore, the only alternative you have is to turn to scripture. And we said when we talked about prophethood way back, when we did the series on prophethood, we said that this is one of the main reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals certain things to people that we call a religion. One of the main reasons is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us faculties, has given us human knowledge, has given us empirical senses to allow us to explore the world, to discover its laws and so on and so forth. But this is where it stops. There are limitations to this. We cannot discover everything. There are things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not given us the faculty to discover. The exact way we're supposed to live as individuals and as societies is impossible to discover. And when human beings try, most of the time, they do it based on self-interest. They do it for their own good. The good of myself, the good of my family, the good of my friends, the good of my nation. Okay, but how, what is the guarantee that this is going to be the good for all of humanity? How do you have a guarantee that this is going to be good for you in the future? Or good for your community or nation or humanity in the future? Do you know all of the implications? Do you understand the network of complexity that you have? You can never know that. The parts that you know, good. The rest of it, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala adds to you the pieces that you need as your creator and the creator of everything else in the world. The only way to rebalance all of the interests, all of the rights and all the privileges. Otherwise, you always see that it falls in one way too much or the other way too much. There's always an exaggeration and a misbalance. And anyone who studies human history or human society today, take any example, any field, this is very clear, but you know that requires a whole discussion on its own. So all of that said, now we come back to our conclusion, which is therefore human reason is limited. And we have to turn to the other source of knowledge given to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that specifically addresses these types of truths, in this case for the afterlife. We turn to the scripture. So now that we turn to the scripture, we want to see what does it say about the afterlife. Before we jump into the laws, the principles that are going to regulate the afterlife, we thought that it would make sense to walk through, even though it's very quick, because this would require a very, very long series of lectures, But if we want to do it very quickly, which is, inshallah, what we're going to try to start today, we just want to walk through the main stations, the main milestones that begin taking us into the afterlife. So we have to begin with death. We have to begin with the moments that a human being starts dying, and then as this soul of ours moves into the afterlife. Okay, so today we're going to start this discussion, as we agreed last time we met, we said, you know, given the interest that we had and some of the questions we had, we said we are going to dedicate one lecture to Alam al-Barzakh, so inshallah this is going to be the next time, and then after that we will start looking at what actually happens to this world and the next world, okay? So... A couple of things to keep in mind for this whole discussion so that we don't keep repeating them. The terms that we are going to be relying on are, in fact, notions presented to us as we said we're relying on the Holy Quran here. So we're not going to spend too much time on the rawayat, otherwise that would add a lot more to discuss and we're trying to go fast here. So we're relying on the Holy Quran. The terms, the notions, the ideas presented by the whole of Quran use a certain language. So one thing that we need to establish right away before going further into this whole discussion is to agree on whether this is to be interpreted and understood in the literal sense or is it more a metaphorical, figurative, symbolic language. We need to establish this first before we go too far. we're going to go to the conclusion, establishing all of this, we're going to come back to it and establish it more thoroughly throughout the discussion. We're going to just take the conclusion of this now and we're going to come back to it later. As we shall see, inshallah, very clearly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this world is going to end. A new world is going to begin. And for instance, the earth that we live on, this planet, the earth is going to be changed into another earth. For instance, that the skies, the heavens that we have in this world are going to be folded up. They are going to be shattered. They're going to be cleaved, torn apart, folded up. So when you read this, you see Allah is clearly saying we are going to change this earth into another earth. So obviously the second use of the term earth is not the same as the first one. So when the Quran says there is an earth in the afterlife, you cannot Allow your mind to go to this earth and say it's the same. And you make all the assumptions based on the fact that it is the same. There are, in fact, verses of the Quran that say we are going to recreate you in that which you do not know. There is a completely, entirely new creation that you are going to have that you can never know unless you are there. So when you put all of these verses together, and inshallah, as we said, we're going to talk about that in more detail. But because we're starting the topic now and we're going to start relying on the verses of the Qur'an, we need to establish this first. That when the Holy Qur'an is going to be talking, using a certain language, is this to be always understood literally? When the Holy Qur'an talks about every single... It says kitab, for instance, that every human being and every nation and humanity are going to be given a kitab, a book, a register, a record... Of everything that they have done. Iqra'a Kitabak, right? And we, we are going to put the fate and the book of every person around their neck when they're going to be resurrected. In the, is this really like a book? You know, in the physical, material sense of a book? There is something, clearly, that is common between those realities described by the whole Qur'an and the ones that we know here. But is it a full correspondence between those realities? No. It can never be. And the Holy Quran says that again and again. That this is going to be a language we use to make you understand to the extent possible. Because you are not there. And this is is going to bring us back to the realities that we talked about. And the simple realities that we have in this world. You can never really understand being in a completely different time unless you were to go and live in that time. Or even... Nowadays, someone describes to you a very foreign land that is entirely different in its culture and its language and its systems. As much as you try to imagine it, it will never be like actually going there and living there for long enough. Same thing applies to the senses. Someone who has never tasted something, you can describe it to them as much as you want. Unless you actually taste it, all the language of the world is not going to be sufficient to make you taste that. The same thing has to be said about the afterlife. It's going to be something that we experience and we live through. All the language that is used is meant to approximate, to allow us to understand to the extent humanly possible. And so this is not a shortcoming on the language used by the Holy Quran. The Holy Quran has used the language in the most powerful, most you know, optimized way, maximized way the maximum benefit that can be drawn out of the language has been drawn out of the language. But this does not mean that the language is good enough or that our human intellect is good enough to understand the realities behind this language. Okay? And so all of this we can summarize in the verse in in Surat Al-Imran, verse 7, well-known verse in the Quran that talks about this, that there is certainly going to be some ambiguity in the verses and the terms that we see. And so we have to rely on the Qur'an to understand those ambiguities and the further detail is provided by the narrations which we said we're not going to delve into right now because we're going very quickly through all of this. So Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la says in the Qur'an, It is he who sent down the book to you. Parts of it are definitive verses. minhu ayatun muhkamat, Definitive verses. They are the mother of the book. So if you understand the Arabic language when it refers to something as the mother of something else, it means it's its foundation, it's that which gives it its main principles, its guiding principles. Everything else is to be understood through it. So when the whole Quran says that there are verses that are the definitive ones, that are the manifest clear ones, those are the verses that are the mother of the book. So if you want to understand the entire Quran, those become your golden rules. Everything else has to be interpreted in light of these verses. Okay, that's the meaning of they are the mother of the hunna kitab. while others are ambiguous. One way to say that, and another way is to say they're allegorical, they're symbolic. As for those in whose hearts is deviance, they pursue what is ambiguous in it. So instead of going to the ones that are very clear, they go to the ones that have ambiguity to play around with the meanings of the Qur'an. Okay, but here we're only establishing because there's another discussion we could have here about the difference between the verses and how to interpret them and understand them. But clearly the Holy Quran itself says about itself that not everything in it is at the same level of clarity. Some of its verses are much clearer than others. Some of them are more ambiguous. So if there is ambiguity, there is perhaps a symbolic language used, there are omissions, there are things that are not explained in detail, when in doubt, when it's not clear, you go back to the verses that are clear that give you the general principles so that you never leave the general boundaries of the teachings of the Quran. okay? So the big steps or the big milestones or the big um, stations that we said we would explore, at least for today, the big ones. The first one, which may seem very banal and trivial, is that everyone will die and inshallah we'll talk about that the second one is that the process of repossessing of the soul of the human being and here the first point we wanted to make is to answer a question that we may encounter that may come up which is who actually repossesses because the holy quran Present three different agents who might repossess the soul. So we'll explain that. Then we'll talk about the process of retaking, repossessing of the soul and how it may differ from one person to another. And in fact, this entire series of stations or steps or sequence is entirely personal to each one of us. Each one of us is going to experience this in a completely different way based on who we are and what we have done and our intentions and our beliefs and so on and so forth. The fourth one is the whole topic of repentance at the moment of death. What does the Holy Quran actually say about that? Because it may be contradictory to some things that we may have heard. And then finally, the wish to return. And we're going to see that this is going to happen in multiple times. One of them is at the moment of death and it's going to happen again. The wish to return to this world so that we do more good, because we realize what just happened the moment we die, or as we are dying. Okay, and then we said the sixth station related to this, we're keeping it, we're postponing it till the next time we meet, inshallah. So the first first, uh, station, or the first reality that we want to explore is that of everyone dying. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in multiple verses in the Quran in one of them, he says, all that is upon earth, or all those who are upon earth, or all that is upon earth, will perish. Or, it's more of a progressive verb, is ephemeral, it's passing away. Okay? fun. Everything that is on it, or everyone that is on this world and this planet, this ground of yours, is going to be passing away general rule that applies to us as living entities and to everything else as we will describe next time every soul shall taste death truly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the holy prophet truly you will die and truly they too will die and in another verse it says once again Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talking to the holy prophet he tells him we have not granted immortality to any human being before you. If you are fated to die, will they live on forever? Because those people are living as though they're never going to die. Okay, and inshallah, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. The point here is that there's one way to read this these verses that seem to be saying something and we take it as trivial. In theory, everybody understands that they die. There's no disagreement, no one would question this. Of course everyone dies. Why is the Holy Quran you know, making a fuss about this? Why is the Holy Quran emphasizing that you will die? It's because the majority of human beings live with a theoretical understanding that they will die. But it hasn't actually sunk in, in terms of belief, to the same sort of belief you have about you know, that things are inevitable in your life, It's not at the same level. Otherwise, you wouldn't live the way you do. If it really hit you that you're going to die, it's completely different than knowing in theory that, you know, maybe one day you will die. And the majority of people live as though it's almost like a maybe. It would happen to me one day. It doesn't actually hit them. It's completely different than someone telling you, for instance, in 16 hours from now, you shall die that feeling that you have then might be completely different. Because now you have certainty or iman. You have the belief. You have the yaqeen. You have no doubt anymore. Well, the Holy Quran talks about this because it wants you to know for sure now that you are going to die. That this is inevitable. That there is no way around this. You are going to die. If this really truly sinks in as a matter of belief, already your life changes. Okay? And so, of course, this is associated to a really big topic that, again, we're not going to talk about now. But this is the topic of how much hope and how many aspirations, how long is your hope in this world? How long, how much longer do you think that you're going to live in this world? And you need to live in a way that You have hopes and aspirations and plans and dreams to develop and to build this world. In fact, this is a religious responsibility. But at the same time, you can't live in a way as though you're never going to die. And so this is where you have to balance between the idea of having the right amount of outlook, keeping in mind that your death is inevitable. So always be prepared that your death is just around the corner. And the idea that you can have plans and you can have dreams and you can have aspirations and you have a duty to build your life and to build this world and to leave it in a better state than when you came in and had access to it. Okay, so this is a big topic we're putting aside. We're just mentioning it in passing. The idea of how much do you want to allow yourself to extend your hopes in this world? Is it rational? Is it logical? Given the inevitability of dying, of death which may be just around the corner or in 200 years right? so that's one the second topic related to death is as we said we may, we may get the impression that some verses of the Holy Quran seem to be contradicting other verses of the Holy Quran when it comes to the repossession of the soul at the moment of death in one verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says it is Allah who takes the souls back at their time of their death. Okay, and we said, we explained in Arabic the, the term tawafi, the yatawafa, Allahu al-anfus is to take something back completely. Okay, and so you have all these words, tawafi, wafa, all of that is when you have a taking back that is complete and so al wafat at the moment of death, is a reference to your soul being taken back completely. Not like when you're asleep, when it is only taken back partially. Okay, we talked about that. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one verse says, it is Allah who takes the souls back at the time of their death. Okay, sounds clear. In another verse it says, say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet to tell the people, say, the angel of death entrusted with you will take you back. Okay, so it's not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly taking back your soul, as the first verse says. Now there is an angel of death entrusted with you who will take back. In the third verse, when death comes unto one of you, our messengers, and here messengers is a reference to the angels. So here there are many angels. In the second verse, you have one angel. Here you have many angels. Our messengers take him back. And they never neglect their duty. So they do as they are to do. At the right time, the right person, they take back their soul entirely. So which one is it? Is it one of the messengers? Is it one of the angels that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to as the messengers of Allah? Is it the angel of death? Or is it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? We can say it's all three. So if we take an example and we talked at length about this when we talked about the topics related to Tawheed and we talked about Tawheed al-Afa'ali. We said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, everything that happens in this world, if it happens, it's because He allows it to happen and He gives it the power to happen. And it would not happen without Him. It would not happen without His authority, without His permission, without His power. And then we talked about all the sorts of different phenomena that exist in this world. So we said, for instance, fire burns. So is it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that burns or is it the fire? I don't know if you remember for those of you or the majority of you were here from the beginning. We said we can say both. It depends what you're looking at. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given this specific permission, this specific power to this specific entity called fire to burn. But that power does not come from within itself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put the power in it. So can you say that it's Allah who does it or can you or should you say it's Allah or the fire well it depends which one you want to emphasize but both are okay to say If we take a much more simple example in our day-to-day lives let's say you're working in a let's say you work in a big company or you work in in the government let's say the minister wants to recognize an employee for having worked. I don't know. Thirty years in a department, have they done a really good job, and so they want to give them a certificate. In certain cases, that employee is going to be summoned, and they will go and meet the minister or the prime minister directly, and they will be given that certificate. And so you'll say the minister gave them a certificate. In other cases, the minister is going to ask the department, or you know, policies are put in place so that that employee is recognized automatically by the system. And so at the end of the day, it might be the supervisor of that employee who gives them their certificate. And that certificate was authorized by the manager, who was authorized by the director, who was authorized by the director general, who was authorized by the minister, who was authorized by the prime minister's office. So who gave, who gave it? Well, anyone in the chain could be said to have given that letter. The director general recognized and appreciated the services of that employee and so they dedicated and they gave them the the certificate or the direct supervisor or we could say the prime minister did it because he's the one who gave the order. The same thing applies, let's say, to a commander, a colonel, a general with a soldier. They give the general orders and the soldier goes and executes and the general comes back and says, I did this or we did that and that's it. You don't go back and ask for it was not really you you only gave the order because that authority came from them okay these are minor examples of the idea of the tawhid al-af'ali that we explained and so when allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the taking back of the soul it's the same thing allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we said everything that is in the hidden aspect of the world the lahib is actually being managed by this invisible force which is the angels and the Qur'an makes this again and again, this point very clear. And we talked at length about the role of the angels in the world. And so one of the roles is to take back the souls. But the angels don't work without a general manager. The general manager, the one who is mandated with this entire aspect of existence of this world, which is death, is under the authority of one angel. He is the angel of death. That's his main file. That's his main mandate and authority. We don't know what else he does, but that part we know he does as it relates to us because the Quran tells us he does. And where does he get his power? He gets it from Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la. Especially when it comes to things that are beyond the power and comprehension of human beings, the Quran makes a point. Even though it says an angel might do it, when it comes to things like life and death, because it's so powerful. Because it's so miraculous, it breaks away with the order of things. It's so fascinating as a reality. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first makes sure to remind you that it's Allah who controls all of this, and then He explains to you the rest of the order. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala establishes clearly that something like life and death, it's all within the hands of God. But with that said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created a system in which He has asked has mandated, has given the power to this angel, and he has given him all of these lower rank angels under him to execute his orders, and it's those angels who will come and who will take the souls of specific human beings, as every angel is mandated with the person that they are supposed to deal with. Okay? So that's one topic. I think this is one we, we explored enough. Is the act of taking the soul of the human being the same for everyone or not? Does it change? Short answer, it changes a lot. In fact, most likely there are no two people whose experience of how their soul is being taken back is going to be the same. What we know clearly from the verses is that there are the extremes And we have to see where do we think we fit on the spectrum. Are we more on the good side or are we more on the bad side? Are we more on the side of those who will have a very easy experience when our soul is going to be taken back? Or are we more on the side of those who are going to have hardship and to experience a torturous event when our soul is being taken back? And so we have both. Very clearly explained in the Holy Quran. Clearly explaining to us that this process is changing from one person to another depending on how good they are. The Quran says in, in, one, in chapter 1632, in reference to the believers, so when it's talking about those who do good, those whom the angels take back, do, while they are in a state of goodness, saying, Peace be upon you. So the angel, when they're coming to take their soul to this type of person, they actually salute them. And when an angel says peace, they're not saying peace as a word. It's not a word when they say peace. This is something existential. You're going to feel that peace. You're going to be at peace as your soul is being removed from you. This is a completely different experience than in the other verse when it says, if you could only see when the angels take back the disbelievers, striking their faces and their backsides, saying, taste the punishment of the burning. So they're already getting a taste of things to come. But it's starting at the moment when the soul is being extracted. It's the same event. Two human beings are experiencing, they're at the same point in their evolution, in their existential journey. But this one Has a completely different experience than that one Based on their acts Based on their intentions Based on how good they are And this goodness, very clearly The Quran says, right? They are in a state of goodness So this is beyond just your deeds This is an internal state Someone who has goodness An internal goodness, a spiritual purity Okay And these can be considered The two extremes, those who are really good The angels salute them And they are going to be completely at peace as the soul departs this body. And on the other side, you have those who are being tortured and punished as the soul is leaving the body because of how they are. And as we said, if these are the two extremes, then for all of us, we are somewhere in between. Inshallah, we're more on the good side. Okay, but this is a spectrum. And as we said, it's going to change from person to person. And this is a, as I said, I keep saying I'm not going to rely on the ahadith, but some ahadith I think are are very, very worth highlighting and very worth knowing and they deserve their own lectures, but at least I mentioned them for now. One of these ahadith is this one. And this one, keep it in mind for the entire series. This is a hadith from the Holy Prophet in which he says, As you live, so shall you die. Well, no two people live in the same way. Each human being lives differently. So, if we look at your whole life, how was your whole life? Not what everybody sees, not the external appearance. How was your life really on the inside, your spiritual life? How was it? As you live, so shall you die. And as you die, so shall you be raised. So shall you be resurrected. You want to know what state you're going to be in when when your soul is being extracted? It's very easy to tell. Look at the state of your spirituality in this life. And you want to see in what state you're going to be when you're going to be brought back from the dead in the afterlife? Well, look at the manner in which your soul was extracted and the manner in which you lived your life. So this hadith, keep it in mind for the entire series. Anything else we're going to say, all the next milestones this week, the next weeks, keep this hadith in mind. It explains everything. That's your golden rule. Repentance at the moment of death. This is important and may require a bit more attention because there's a couple of layers to this. The first one, and we talked about it a couple of weeks, we had a good question about it. There is no question, there is no doubt that our religion encourages us, as a matter of duty, to seek To the best of our abilities, God's forgiveness all the time. That part is not an issue. The Holy Quran, in fact, says, as we explained, if you are ever finding yourself in a state where you're starting to despair, you're starting to think that your sins are too great for Allah's forgiveness, that you're too humiliated and therefore it might be better to just continue on sinning or not asking for forgiveness... You're, this is actually a much greater sin in the eyes of Allah than this, these sins that you are ashamed of and that are preventing you from going back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so we talked about that, good reminder. So very quickly, the verses of the Qur'an that have to do with this topic. God loves those who turn to Him in repentance. And as we said, this verse actually, this translation doesn't do it justice okay when allah subhanahu ta'ala says a tawwabin it's someone not only who turns it's someone who turns again and again with insistence this is not taib this is tawwab okay so there's an insistence there's an emphasis and a repetition in the act allah subhanahu ta'ala point blank there's no uh, ambiguity here allah subhanahu ta'ala says god loves those who turn to him in repentance okay so obviously they made a sin why are you turning to Allah in repentance? But he's saying, turn to me in repentance. I love the fact that you come back after you sinned. Okay, so that's one. Another verse. And do not despair of Allah's mercy. Do not ever reach a point where you think, that's it, you are not going to be forgiven for anything you have done. And do not despair of Allah's mercy. Indeed, no one despairs of Allah's mercy except the disbelieving people. It's people who don't understand Allah, who don't believe in Allah, Who don't believe in his forgiveness or his mercy, who are not going to believe that he can still forgive them, no matter how bad and how wrong their sins are. The third verse, say, O my servants, Imam Ali says, this is the greatest verse in the Quran, when he was asked. Say, O my servants who have committed excesses against their own souls, do not despair of the mercy of Allah. Indeed, Allah will forgive all sins. Indeed, He is the all-forgiving, the all-merciful. The topic is not the topic of repentance, okay? But I'm keeping this, keep this in mind as we talk about the topic. Inshallah, this part is clear. The topic is, we're talking about death. So the topic is what happens to someone who wants to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive them at the moment of death. So, if we look at the verses of the Qur'an, let's see what they say. In a verse it says, Do they await, do those people await, that the angels should come to them, or your Lord should come to them, or some of your Lord's signs should come to them? So, what are they waiting to believe? What are they waiting for to accept the truth? Are they basically waiting for these things, which will happen in the afterlife, or what? What? So it says, do they await But that the angels should come to them or your Lord should come to them or some of your Lord's signs should come to them? The day when some of your Lord's signs do come, faith shall not benefit any soul that had not believed beforehand and had not earned some goodness in its faith. So if at the time of death you start realizing that you're dying, and you start asking for God's repent, uh, repentance from Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la and asking for His forgiveness, the whole Qur'an says, now it's too late. Now you're seeing the signs. Now the angels have come to you. Now you know that it's all over. Now it's too late. In another verse, it says, repentance by Allah. And so this is a very important verse for the whole topic of repentance. So, marthirah, tawbah, that whole topic. The, all the conditions are there, very simply, clearly stated. Repentance by Allah is only for those who commit evil out of ignorance. So you're not defying Allah when you're doing it. Okay, you're in a state of forgetfulness, a state of weakness, you perform the sin. Then they repent promptly. They repent quickly. As soon as they realize that they did something wrong, that they sinned, they ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, مِن قَرِيبٍ Right away, as soon as you realize, you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive you. These are the ones whose repentance Allah will accept. Okay. And Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. Repentance is not for those who go on committing misdeeds. Then when death approaches any of them, He says, I repent now. Nor is it for those who die while they are faithless. For such we have prepared a painful punishment. So now you're taking this as a joke. You think that you can defy Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knowingly that you can go on living and performing misdeeds and defying Allah all the way to the last moment Then now that you feel you're going to leave this world, you can ask for forgiveness and everything will be wiped out. Clean slate, that's not how it works. So this is very clear. And I, I'm intentionally spending a bit more time on this. And then in the next verse it says, We carried the children of Israel across the sea. Whereat Faraun and his troops pursued them out of defiance and aggression. So this is right after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, We asked them to follow Prophet Musa, salam. the sea opened up, they followed Prophet Musa, the sea, Pharaoh, and his troops followed them, and the sea closed. And everyone with Faraun died, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kept Faraun. He lasted longer, even though he was wearing all his gold and he couldn't swim and so on and so forth. Okay, so now we're watching Pharaoh in his dying moments. He says, so Pharaoh and his troops pursued them out of defiance and aggression until he was overtaken by drowning. See, now he knows that he's dying. That's it, he is stuck. He called out, I believe that there is no God except him in whom the children of Israel believed. And I am one of those who submit. Allah's answer to him is what? Now, when you have been disobedient until now and were among the workers of corruption, you've lived your whole life, how many chances did you have? Allah wa ta'ala sent him Prophet Musa, salam. even when he told him to start talking to him, he told him, You and your brother go, Prophet Harun and Prophet Musa, go and talk to him in a gentle way. Talk to him gently, even though he's saying, I am your God, I am your greater God. Talk to him gently. This is how it began. And then it became threats. And he saw the miracles, one after the other. And then at the end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put his people to death. And he was left. And it did not occur to him to believe in that state until he was sure he was drowning. Hatta <laughs> When he was overwhelmed, he was sure that he was going to drown, he did not say, I believe in God. He can't say, I believe in God. That would be too much for him. So he's going to believe in whatever God Bani Israel believed in. So even in that state, he's still playing a game with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He doesn't say I have now believed in God. Amen tubiladi Amen at Bihanu Israel. Whatever they believed in, okay, that I believe in. So just deliver me and get me out of the water. So Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala answers him, Al An, now. Now you believe, now that you have seen death, now it's too late. Okay? So the reason why I'm spending a little bit more time on this is that this is the clear image we get from the Holy Quran. You cannot live your life defying Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la, which is different from when the verse says, there are those who, when they perform a sin, they perform it out of ignorance, and then they ask Allah's repentance. That's different. This is someone who lives their life defying Allah. You know that there is a truth that you should go towards, but you reject it, you refuse it, all the way until your dying moments when it's too late, because now you're sure. The whole test was to live your life in the best way. Not when you're dying. So when you're dying now, it's too late. The Holy Quran says now it doesn't count anymore. Now you've seen death. The whole point was to accept the guidance and accept the truth before this moment. The problem is we have a lot of narrations that say, it's still good for you so long as you just say, you know, I believe in God. So long as we have narrations that say, so long as you haven't gargled gargled in the sense that your soul has not reached your throat and another in another, ver- in another uh, narration we have it says so long from Abu Dhar he says so long as the veil has not been lifted because we believe that at the moment of death it's like a veil is lifted and you start seeing the world as it truly is you start seeing angels you start seeing your true state you see things that you did not see when you were alive so we have a narration that says so long as the veil is not lifted so long as you Say, I believed and I'm good before that second, then everything is good and everything is accepted and you're forgiven and you're going directly in an express lane to, to heaven. That's not what the Quran says. So I went through the Holy Quran and took out the verses of the Quran that talk about repentance. And I will just recite them very quickly to you. And you tell me what is the conclusion that you get from these verses. We're looking at repentance. Okay, can you repent the moment you're dying and is it going to be accepted from you or not? When you look at the amount of hadith or reports that we have saying so long as it's done right before, everything is good. Compare that to these verses. The first one says, accept those who repent, mend their ways and declare the truth, mend their ways as in they fix the mistakes they made. So if I hurt someone, I go and apologize and make it better. If I stole money, I go give it back. So on and so forth. That's mend their ways. Okay. So accept those who repent, mend their ways, and declare the truth. Then it is they to whom I will turn in forgiveness. Allah says, I will turn to them in forgiveness. I will forgive them. Another verse: Accept those who repent afterwards, after they did all the wrong. Accept those who repent afterwards and make amends, for Allah is all forgiving, all merciful. A third verse: Accept those who repent. Make amends. Tabu is always, aslahu. Okay? Make amends. Hold fast to Allah and dedicate their religion exclusively to Allah. Those are with the believers and soon Allah will give the believers a great reward. Yet those who committed misdeeds but repented after that and believed, indeed after that, your Lord is surely all forgiving, or all merciful. But if they repent, those people, who did all sorts of wrong, but if they repent and maintain prayer and give the charity, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive them. Another verse. Yet, if they repent and maintain the prayer and give the charity, then they are your brethren in faith. Another verse. I think the point is clear, inshallah which is the Holy Quran never says you just repent. There's always something linked to your repentance. And if you're doing this at the moment that you're dying, is there time to do the islah that the Quran is stating as a condition every time? It says when you repent, you also have to believe. When you repent, you also have to go and perform the prayer and give the zakah. When you repent, you have to fix your mistakes. You can't do any of that if it's happening in the dying moment. So this changes entirely this notion that you can just... Wait until you're about to die and then ask Allah for forgiveness. It doesn't work that way. Okay? So that, that's the point we're trying to make. And inshallah, by now, this is clear. Wishing to return. There are multiple times the Holy Quran states that people are going to be asking Allah to return them to this life. The first one happens in the moments of death. And then there are requests. In the next world, alam al-barzakh, which we saw, we, we said that we will, we will talk about later. And then there are requests in the afterlife when we see, when the person sees the punishment of the afterlife. And then there are other requests once they are in the punishment. Each one of them, but right now we're talking about the first one. Each one of these, there is someone who right away realizes where they're at what just happened and where they're going. And so they ask Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la to return them to this life. Why? And this is the key that we highlighted the last time we spoke. They just realized there is no more opportunity for action. That's why they keep asking to come back to this life. That's why we said this is the most important point for our practical purposes. The most important point is that the moment you reach death, there's no more chance for action. So these people, they intuitively know that that's it. The moment you die, you're paralyzed and you're held hostage to your actions and to your deeds. So you're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, just bring me back and I'll be good. And the Holy Quran gives us two main reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not return anyone. The first one is that now it's too late for action. This is the whole point of this life, is that you are given a chance and we want to see what you're going to do with it. Coming back after that chance is over basically defies the whole purpose. Why would you go back? Everybody should go back if you go back. That's one. Two, Allah says, although they say that they will do better, these people will now do better. They will repeat the same actions they made the first time. So this is another reason. And the reason for this is, of course, because of the kind of person that you've made yourself to be. This is what you're going to keep choosing every time. You're not going to choose something different. You will end up choosing the same things. So that's it. We put you here. You build the personality. You build the person that you are. And now you are stuck with whatever you have put in. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, And if you could only see when they are made to stand before the fire, whereupon they will say, if only we were sent back. So this is in the afterlife. They're seeing. Okay, they're not in it yet As soon as they see it, they ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala To go back If only we were sent back Then we will not deny the signs of our Lord But we will be among the believers Rather now has become evident to them What they used to hide before But were they to be sent back They would revert to what they were forbidden And they are indeed liars They're lying If we were to bring them back They're going to repeat the same things they did the first time Another verse, until death comes to one of them, any one of us, until death comes to one of them, then he says, oh my Lord, send me back that I may perhaps do good in that which I have left behind. Because I can't do good from here. This is not a world of action anymore. So bring me back so that I may do good in what I have left and the faculties and the money and my abilities and that life, which I have left. But no, it is but mere words he is saying. Okay? And here in in Arabic, and we don't have time to to do the commentary of the verse, the verse says, لَعَلِّ أَعْمَلُ صَالِحًا So it's not even sure. It's not even promise with certainty that I will go back and do good. It's maybe that I may perhaps do good if I were to be sent back. Okay? Again, keep in mind, as you live, so shall you die. Okay? It's not that suddenly you're going to turn into someone who is going to be able to do good that's it you're stuck with whatever you built and molded in this world and the next so even if you are to be brought back that's the mold that you're stuck in that's it and follow the best of what has been sent down to your lord to you from your lord before the punishment overtakes you suddenly while you are unaware lest any soul should say alas for my negligence and my duty towards allah indeed i was among those who ridiculed or says, if God had guided me, I would certainly have been among the righteous. Or says, when faced by the punishment, if only there had been a second chance for me, I would be among the virtuous. Yes, my signs came to you, but you denied them and acted arrogantly, and you were of the disbelievers. Okay, And another verse, had there been another turn, karaten, we would be among the believers. This is in group. Inshallah, we're going to talk about that. How there are stations... And cases where you're being dealt with and held accountable individually and other times as a group. Okay, here you see they're talking as a group. Do they await anything but its fulfillment? Allah says, what are they waiting for? That the, everything we said in the Qur'an happens, happens. That's what they're waiting for. So that's it. We're in the afterlife. The day its fulfillment occurs, those who had forgotten it before will say our Lord's messengers had certainly brought the truth. If only we had some intercessors to give intercession for us, to make it better for us, or we would be returned so that we, we, we may do differently from what we did. They have certainly ruined their souls and what they used to fabricate has forsaken them. If you could only see when the criminals will bend low their heads before their Lord. Our Lord, we have now seen and heard. Now then send us back so that we do good. Indeed, we are now believers. But again, it's too late, too late, too late. They shall cry therein, so now they're in the punishment. They shall cry therein for help, our Lord. Take us out so that we may act righteously, differently from what we used to do. Did we not grant you a life long enough that one who is heedful might take admonition, might remember, might do good, and the warner has also come to you? I mean, you have no excuse. So what's the point of taking you out now? Okay. Finally, we said we're going to skip the Alam al-Barzakh. Uh, we'll talk about it next time. Let's end with a couple of things. I went way over the time. I apologize. Just a couple of minutes and we end. A few terms that have to do with these realities that we did not cover right now. These Each one of, each one of them we could spend an entire lecture or more on. And these are terms that you encounter, especially in the narration. So at least I'm leaving you the Very short, quick definition to each in case you encounter them. Okay? The first one is ihtivar. ihtivar means someone is in the state of dying. The state of dying, what we see as human beings, what we see is completely different from what the person is experiencing. There is a point of view of us seeing someone who is passing away, and then there is what they are experiencing as they're going through this. A part of that is the process of extracting of the soul that we talked about how it could be really good or really bad for someone okay so if you see ihtizar it's a reference to the time when someone is in the stage of passing away this is not a moment this is a whole stage okay that's one the second one is naz'ur ruh again naz'ur ruh is the soul is being taken out this can be a very long process or a very short process and it could be very difficult or it could be very easy But it's not an instant. It's not a black and white or punctual point in time. This is a process. Nazarouh is a process. Okay. So again, just to have very high level definitions. Zuhuq ruh is the moment when the soul completely detaches from the body. So now that process is over, and now you are. So the ihtdar and nazarouh, you are still in the process of dying. Zuhuq ruh. Now you are. Past the point of death. You are now officially dead. You are now entered, you have now entered your own afterlife. Okay? There's nothing else that can happen from that point on. You are entirely and completely hostage to whatever you left in this world in terms of actions and intentions. And then the term adila. Ya'dil. Al-insan ya'dil. Or adila. And there's a prayer of adila. This is that someone who had a faith that was shaky, that was not entirely firm in their heart and their soul. So at the moment of death, because of the difficulty of that time, of that stage, there are people who lose their faith entirely. If that happens, we say that this person has gone through, they have Adala. He He's shifted. He's shifted from believing in God to not believing in God. From believing in Muhammad to not believing in Muhammad from believing in the Quran to not believing in the Quran. That's the عدود. And this is the importance of continuously being in a state of reminder of what do you actually believe in? Is your belief deeply anchored in you? There are human beings who go through certain things in life when you're completely in a state of shock, you may forget your name. That's why when, let's say you're in a car, an accident, even if nothing physically happens to you. If a trauma happens in front of you, one of the first things they, they check if there's no, nothing wrong with you physically, they ask you, do you know where you are? Do you, do you know what day we are? They're asking you very trivial, very simple questions and there are people who can't answer. They don't understand or they understand the question they, they don't know how to answer because of the trauma that they've just experienced. It seems that the the stage of the soul being extracted from the body is no less of a trauma than these events. We want our faith to be strong enough that even if I were to forget my name and what day of the week it is, I'm not going to forget my faith. That's why I repeat every day in my prayer so many times. It's so that I anchor it and I keep thinking about it all the time. Five times a day in my prayers, and I read the Qur'an, and I attend places, and I read books. Why? And so that is actually part of who I am. It's not something that comes and goes wishy-washy, that I may lose at the closest, the quickest, you know, trauma, shock, uh, anything that comes to, uh, you know, shake my system and my, my person, my belief. All of that just goes away, because it was never really fixed and firm in the first place, Right? So this is the whole topic of Adila that simply, as, as I said, just to have the, the term, you understand what the term is. Again, for this whole lesson and the next lessons, I think as you guys saw already, there is nothing really you know, uh, overly complex theoretically in all of this. So a lot of this, the point in everything that we're talking about right now, the point in all of this is not just to accumulate information and all that. That's really good. Okay, you have your your understanding, your theoretical understanding. The point is, we go back and we think, what does this mean? Now that I know this, what does this mean? Practically, what does it mean for my life? Okay, so I'm emphasizing more on the theoretical knowledge, making sure that you at least have a proper image of all of this. And this is going to apply to the next next few lectures too. But the point in all of this is, What do you do with this? Now that you have this knowledge, how does it translate into action in your life? Does it just stop at, I know what happens when I die. I know what happens when I'm in the grave. I know what happens in the afterlife. Or does it mean anything for the way I live my life? And the last point I wanted to make is, I think anyone, the more you spend time understanding and meditating about this topic of death, the more it has an impact on your life. And this is something that's highlighted very clearly in the Holy Quran, very clearly in the Hadith. If you want to be fully in control, fully disciplined in your life, the easiest, quickest way to do that is to fully realize that you will die. And you know, we can open a whole series of lectures on how philosophy has dealt with this. A lot of philosophers have made this the central point. There's a big philosopher in in recent times, Martin Heidegger, his entire philosophical system is based on the idea that a human being realizes that death is inevitable. So at least as a philosopher, as a deep thinker, he has fully grasped this. But of course he goes, we believe, in a completely different direction because he doesn't have the benefit and the guidance of a religious scripture and a religious guidance so he's relying entirely on what a human mind can do which we which we said has limitations and so in the end these philosophies are always going to either make you reach a state of depression or a state of nihilism so basically nothing is worth anything life is meaningless everything is ridiculous there are no there's no truth or false you live it however you want and so on and so forth relativity of values and and blah blah, blah. okay so anyways all of that to say Practically in your daily lives, all of us, you have to find a way to remind yourself of death. Do whatever you want to do. Find the trick that you want to do. But at the end of the day, you need something to remind you that there is death waiting. At least in the big decisions in your life. Things that involve rights of others. Things that involve big projects. Things that involve where you're going with your life. You need to keep in mind that there is death awaiting. Either you believe in all of this or you don't. So if you do, then there has to be something that reminds you this is happening so that you don't wake up too late as the Holy Quran keeps saying. Then we ask, let's go back so that we fix what we left behind. There's a, a story. Very quickly, let's end with that story. There's a story, there's a, a scholar by the name of Agam Zulg al he, huge scholar, uh, he was a legal scholar and, and so on and so forth, but he was well known for, uh, you know, as a historian, he specialized in history, in biographies and in bibliographies. The, the book that he wrote, he, he wrote his main work, uh, Al-Dhari'ah, Al-Atasalif al it took him 50 years to write it. And if you compare what he did, it would be a monumental task. Today, you would have teams of scholars creating that encyclopedia. 28 large volumes written by hand. That's one of his works. He has others. He wrote Tabakat. Tabakat is 18 huge volumes that was recently published in 28 or 30 volumes. That's another work. This one, that's his main work that he took 50 years to write. Dhari'ah has... Uh, Over 53,000 entries as an encyclopedia. 53,000 entries, each one of them telling you the full life of a scholar and specializing in each one of their works that he was able to find. What did they write? Every, you know, the, the treaties that they wrote, the books that they wrote, some of them are found, some of them are lost. That was his main work. In any case, so this is for anyone who's interested in, in you know, knowledge and this theoretical stuff. This is Arab Zurg al He would take a little bit of food that would last him one week and he would go to the library. And he would stay there for about a week. He would not go out. He would work for one week at a time, come out and go back again. And that's how he wrote that, that book. They say that he had dug a grave in his house. And every night he would lie in the grave. He would come to the grave and he would lie in it and he would rec- recite the verse that we read. The verse that says, ja'a And when one of them, when death reaches one of them, Qala, Rabbi la'alli salihan he asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, return me so that I do good in what I have left behind. And then he answers himself. As he's lying in the grave every day, he says, لَقَدْ أَرْجَعْنَاكَ يَا مُحْسَنَ His name was Muhsin, Sheikh Muhammad Muhsin, but they call him أَغَابُ al الطَهْرَانَ So he pretends, he tells himself, imagine if I were actually in the grave tonight and I have died. And I'm now asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, okay, please return me so that I may do more good. I want to do good. Return me. And so he answers himself and he says, okay, we've given you one more day go back. And every day he would do this at night. That was his trick. I'm not saying we dig a grave in our houses tonight. Find a way to remind yourself of death on a regular basis, whatever it may be, and do it in a productive way, just like he did. So his point is not that I remember death. Therefore I am depressed. And I hide in my house and I closed the door and I stayed depressed for the rest of my life in seclusion. He turned this into something positive and something productive. Imagine that you had reached death, and then you are told the angel of death tells you, and now you know for sure that you are dying, and he tells you, you know what? There was a change. We just granted you another month, we just granted you another year, we just granted you another ten years. How would you live? What would you do? So turn it into something positive. But remember that it is there. The inevitability of death is there. Turn it into something positive and make sure that you have some sort of constant reminder that death is always there. Rasallallahu Sayyidina Muhammad wa Um we went way over time. I don't know if we want to take any questions live. If there are any, you can write them. I am looking at the chat. Um, although we don't have anyone on Zoom. I don't know if there's anyone on Facebook or who wrote to anyone. We're good? Okay. That's it. So let's stop here. And then we, if we, there are questions, concerns here, we can deal with them. Sallallahu wa alayhi wa